For the past several classes in this series, we've been considering the divine principle of separation, with our foundation of the Nazarite vow intending to separate to God, but separating from four issues of eating grape products, touching dead bodies, alcohol consumption, and haircuts. So now our task is to apply this principle of separation to the laws and rituals of the ecclesial age in our pursuit of divine acceptability, so that we might be among those few, among the many called to Christ's judgment, who will actually be invited to inherit the kingdom. We began our considerations in the last class, recognizing there is a need to separate ourselves to the enlightened community, the family of God, while also separating ourselves from the unenlightened community, at least to some degree. We're not required to live as hermits, but certainly socially distancing ourselves from those who are not part of the enlightened and committed community of believers. Interestingly, this social distancing phrase is the key issue in the global response to this pandemic in these last days before our judgment before the Son of God. The social distancing required of the enlightened community in relation to the unenlightened community, or for that matter anyone opposing the terms of our greatest righteousness, the truth, is joining them in their social, religious, and political activities, and not just a physical distance. The effect would be the same, either physic being physically diseased by common contact in relation to the coronavirus, or spiritually diseased by common pursuits, as opposed to the required separating from standard required by God and Christ. The balance issue in the challenge of a correct application of this separation principle is how we are to satisfy the divine command to love our neighbor as ourselves, yet separate from them socially and philosophically, distancing ourselves, but still being somewhat supportive, as we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a balance to understand and apply, or we will be failing God and Christ. We're told in Second Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul uh, commands us, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. This separation from command focuses on being unequally yoked, not simply with the unenlightened, but with unbelievers, which would include enlightened rejectors as well. This application is usually understood in this command um, to marriage, which certainly identifies a yoking, but that's not the exclusive application. God's word is never that simple. This would also apply to the business world, and certainly politics. If we have a business partner that qualifies as an unbeliever, we will be yoked 
to them. Our light will be partnering with their darkness and our status as the temple of God being identified with idolatry. Notice how Paul references that touching law to not touch the unclean thing. That's the issue being silently shouted to the whole world right now in the current pandemic. That avoidance of physical contact with what is unclean and dangerous. Yoking ourselves to unbelievers is extremely dangerous, whether in marriage or business or in any way where we're expected to work in tandem for common goals. The reward for this social distancing from the unbeliever is that God will be our Father, in more than just promise, but reality. The ultimate application of qualifying as the sons and daughters of the Almighty is the experience of immortalization. Through the marriage of the Lamb, um, the saints, the ecclesial bride, automatically qualify as the children of the father of the groom, that groom being the Son of God. An extension of this principle is how we view our mother-in-law and father-in-law, sons-in-law and daughters-in-law. I'll share my personal policy. After I married my sister-wife, Dory, um, was to address my father-in-law as dad, my mother-in-law as mom. And this somewhat disturbed my own mother. She saw herself as exclusive in that mom assignment. She had given birth to me. She raised me, made sure I did my Bible readings, that I learned the truth. She loved me intensely. But after I married Dory, I was referring to another woman with her title. Now, this is not something my my own mother would do with her mother-in-law, who was also a sister in the truth. She would always, always address her as grandma, not mom, despite the fact that her own mother was a devoted Catholic, a servant of the Harlan Church. My defense in addressing my mother-in-law and father-in-law as mom and dad was always the divine principle demonstrated in marriage. My sister wife and I became one upon our marriage, no longer two, but one with one common name, as Dory took my name, just as the saints will get a new name upon their marriage to the Son of God, and also in the same way that we're baptized into the one family name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus commanded the disciples before he ascended to heaven. By becoming one with my wife, I lose and gain identity. My wife, thankfully, has had a great influence on who I became over the last 47 years of our marriage. There is a lot of her in me now and a lot of me in her. Therefore, her father and mother became my father and mother due to both the technical aspect of the relationship and the blending procedure. Do we think it's just coincidence that the marriage union establishes a new origin source of four as opposed to two? I went from two parents to four parents when I married Dory. Four is the number of God manifestation, as we have repeatedly and very extensively proven, radiating from those four letters in the memorial name of God and demonstrated in the four salvation events in the Creator's plan from the very beginning. So, 
I confidently defended my policy of addressing my mother-in-law as mom, my father-in-law as dad, because I became one with their daughter, who chose to replace her name with my own, and her commitment to our oneness to demonstrate eternal divine principles. So, if we want to forever qualify as the sons and daughters of the Almighty, we will not yoke ourselves to unbelievers, whether they are among the unenlightened or the enlightened communities. This is a separation from application. We should not marry out of the truth, and we should not be business partners with unbelievers. In our efforts to separate two in our discipleship, if we do not respect the necessity to separate from, then we will not qualify to become the eternal sons and daughters of the Almighty. Now, there are uh, abundant warnings throughout the Word of God about the dangers of being unequally yoked with unbelievers in marriage. Solomon, King Solomon, is that poster child for this problem. He was the smartest man in his generation and the wisest, but still, his wives corrupted that wisdom. We read in First Corinthians, First uh, uh, Kings, eleven, uh, beginning the first verse. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Shamash, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that's before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. To make the matter worse, Solomon did not respond well to rebuke or correction. But then that's, that's very often the case when the enlightened community has been rebuked. And this is why they killed the prophets. When Jesus insulted the leaders of the enlightened community so severely and so publicly in the temple environment with those Eight woes in Matthew 23. He was being executed two days later. Jesus declared that these highly respected leaders of the enlightened community were liars, hypocrites, that they devoured widows' houses, that they were blind guides straining at a gnat, but able to swallow a camel. He called them serpents and a generation of vipers and whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Now, this certainly wasn't the only time Jesus had been so unsociably insulting to those within the enlightened community. At the very beginning of his ministry, in his hometown of Nazareth, he had insultingly compared the men in the synagogue to Israel at the time of Elisha and Elijah, 
when they performed healing miracles on Gentiles. They unsuccessfully tried to kill Jesus at that time. Christadelphians have demonstrated a strong resistance to correction throughout the history of the world, beginning with Cain. The problem we have today is that we're still in the period of God's self-imposed divine silence that's prophesied to end after we no longer have any opportunity to repent. No repentance will be accommodated at our final judgment, where many are going to be called to the judgment, but only a few are going to be chosen. A rather powerful scriptural demonstration uh, for marrying the danger of marrying out of the truth was the incident at Baal Peor. The enlightened community was camped in the plains of Moab, not long before they were to cross the Jordan and inherit the promised land, much like our own timing. It won't be long before those who will be chosen as saints will inherit the restored kingdom of God. Balak, the Midianite king, had failed in his attempts to curse Israel, but Balaam, the prophet of God, earned his blood money by advising Balak that the way to curse Israel was to promote unity between the pagans and the enlightened community. Balaam advised them not to make war with Israel, as they would not stand a chance, but they could offer peace of toleration and acceptance, the sharing of sons and daughters, inviting them to their social events, just as paganized Christianity does today, with its pagan-based holidays like Christmas, Halloween, Good Friday, Lent, Easter. Unity was the path for the destruction of the children of God that Balaam, the prophet of God, presented to the Midianites and the Moabites. Now, this isn't a guess, as we're told about the failure of Balaam by Jesus and Peter and Jude. Jesus rebukes the ecclesia at Pergamos for accommodating those among them who failed in the same pattern as Balaam. In Revelation chapter 2, we read Jesus saying, But I have a few things against you, because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So Balaam, a prophet of God, actually taught the Midianites how to destroy their ancient relatives. I mean, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Midian was the sixth son of Abraham, out of the eight sons of Abraham, by those three separate wives. This prophet Balaam's betrayal to those God favored is referenced by both Peter and Jude in their powerful warnings about the dangers of respected but false teachers within the enlightened community. We read in Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false uh, teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not, which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Basor.
We are warned that just as there have always been false teachers within the enlightened community, so will it always be. Peter references Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. He also references the ungodly destroyed in the flood. Well, let's remember the context here. It is false teachers within the enlightened community. These are not warnings about the danger of listening to those outside the enlightened community. That reference to the ungodly destroyed in the flood is identifying the enlightened community who were not demonstrating God's righteousness in their lives. They rejected Noah's preaching of righteousness because, just like the preaching of Jesus, they could not imagine that they were somehow not acceptable to God. Remember, there, there's no reference whatsoever to any doctrinal apostasy prior to the flood. Only behavioral apostasy. Everyone prior to the flood was part of the enlightened community. Peter also referenced the destruction of Sodom, where hundreds of the enlightened community that had separated from Abram's community with Lot had adopted the ungodly behavior patterns of the Sodomites. They did not separate themselves from the unenlightened in Sodom. Jude also warns us about false teachers operating within the enlightened community who will endanger our acceptability to God if we allow them to influence our understandings. Jude also establishes the context as being false teachers operating within the enlightened community. In addition to also referencing the rebellion of Korah, Jude also points out uh, all those within the enlightened community who were saved from Egypt but destroyed in the wilderness, despite witnessing many powerful, miraculous demonstrations of God's saving power. Jude also references the destruction of the enlightened community at Sodom. Jude refers to those who allow themselves to be influenced by these false teachers within the enlightened community as going the path of Cain and the path of Balaam. We all know Balaam was an enemy of the children of God, despite being a prophet of God, but it is the exact false teaching of Balaam we should note. It was the path of unity. Balaam taught the Midianites not to war against Israel, but to blend with them. Balaam knew that would encourage the anger of God against the Israelites. So the failure at Baal Peor was the absence of the enlightened community separating themselves from the unenlightened, not joining them in their festivals and celebrations, and not intermarrying. The incident at Baal Peor highlighted in Numbers 25 is particularly fascinating. The Israelite ecclesial members were actually accepting the invitations of the Midianites to attend their religious celebrations and would politely show respect to their pagan gods during those uh, unity-based events. Now, politeness can be a good thing, but it can be a very bad thing, depending on the circumstances. Jesus was sometimes extremely impolite when he identified the ungodly behavior patterns and false understandings of the leaders of the enlightened community during his ministry. The last one was when he answered the childishly foolish question of the Sadducees who insisted there was no resurrection in the plan of God. Jesus concluded his answer uh, with 
a statement that finally shut them up. In Luke chapter 20, um, Jesus answers their question, and then he addresses the problem of their false teaching. He says, now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he's not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain, certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. <laughs> Jesus pointed out that if these false teachers within the enlightened community insisted there was no resurrection, then they were automatically defining the God of Abraham as nothing but a God of the dead, like the Greek god Hades, or the Egyptians Anubis, or the Romans Pluto, or Kali in India, or paganized Christianity Satan, Satan. Applying the principle of separation will often impose an, impre an impression of impoliteness. And this is why the path of unity is the path of equality. And both unity and equality are components of the serpent philosophy. But it isn't the separation to issue that demonstrates that impoliteness. It is the separation from aspect of the separation principle that highlights the danger of reducing our goal from harmony with God to only unity with men. So, in Numbers chapter 25, we have a command from God to, from Moses to execute any brother in the truth who accepted the invitation of, from Midian and participated in their feast. Uh, despite this, the son of a man defined as a prince in the tribe of Simeon parades a Midianite woman in front of everyone and takes her into his tent, obviously defying Moses and Aaron and accepting the offer of unity with the Midianites encouraged by the prophet Balaam. So, Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, who would soon become the next high priest, grabbed a javelin burst into their tent and with a single powerful thrust killed both of them, <laughs> identifying their activity inside that tent by killing both with one killing stroke. By law, Phinehas had committed murder and should have been stoned to death. Yet God gives Phinehas an eternal covenant of peace for this exceptionally impolite and very zealous defense of God's righteousness. But then we learn who these two people were. The man was Zimri, the son of Salu, a prince of the chief house of the tribe of Simeon. The woman was Cosby, the daughter of one of the five Midianite kings, an enlightened, an enlightened prince marrying out of the truth to an unenlightened princess. We're told the names of the two that were killed and their fathers, and this tells us the rest of the story. When the meanings of their four names are joined together, miserable, celebration, rock, deceit, we can easily see why God identified both the children and the fathers. This was a miserable celebration with the rock of deceit. Therefore, one of the applications for the principle of separation in the ecclesial age is to separate ourselves from the unenlightened, not to be yoked together 
either in marriage or a business partnership. We should not be joining paganized Christianity in their religious celebrations like Christmas and Easter and Halloween. If we want to avoid being among those scripture calls the ungodly, we will carefully but firmly separate from as well as separate to, pursuing a harmony with God and not a unity with men. I have a couple of avenues of advice in the context of applying this principle of separating from the unenlightened community. The first is a frequent prayer request I made to God from the time I was about 18 years old. I asked God to choose my wife because I felt that if the choice was left up to me, I would surely make a horrible mistake. This prayer was offered repeatedly um, more than once a week for several years and actually even presented very sincerely only 10 minutes before my wedding ceremony. I expressed that if Dory was not his choice, then a, a simple earth, earthquake or a building fire or something to disrupt the wedding would be my signal. Happily, Dory was God's choice for me, and that truth has been made abundantly clear to me over and over for many decades. So my first advice for anyone in our enlightened community unmarried and wants to be at some point is to pray fervently and repeatedly and obediently that God choose your spouse. It took me the first few years of our marriage to stop saying, I can't believe I married Dory Riley. We had a long history together as friends, but I never had any romantic inclinations for Dory until a little less than a year before we were married and I had moved back to New England from Arkansas, over a thousand miles away. The second avenue of advice that I'd like to offer is about teaching our children in relation to this issue. Some of you may that attend this class uh, may already be aware of the training that we gave to our own daughters from the time they were old enough to walk and talk, which is well over 40 years ago now. We told them they would never be allowed to even date outside the enlightened community. Now, this was not a rule that had been imposed on either Dory or myself by our parents. Our daughters were very comfortable with this rule. By the time they were in high school, every boy in that school knew that they would that our daughters would not be attending school dances or going out on dates. But this policy uh, certainly was not the case with everyone else in our brotherhood. Dory and I were fairly frequently criticized for this separation from application. The usual excuse was that a young man or woman could be brought into the truth. And our response was to point out historical facts. For every one success in that regard, we could name at least eight failures for every success that they could bring to mind. Dory and I have had the privilege of teaching the truth to quite a number of different people over the years. But our personal policy was that my first and most significant goal by far 
was to teach the truth to our daughters. And that came before anyone else. Now, eventually, our daughters, as sisters in the truth, married wonderful brethren, brothers, uh, and we now have eight grandchildren, four of which are baptized, <clears throat> and all of them faithful to the truths about God's righteousness. And they're also told that they'll not be allowed to date outside the enlightened community. Dory and I care a lot more about saving our own family than saving anyone else. And we will never apologize for that, for loving our children more, as that is the divine pattern also. So there are a couple of avenues of advice that have served us very well um, since we committed ourselves to understand, demonstrate, and defend the terms of God's righteousness. But just as there are layers and layers to the testimony of God in both scripture and creation, those two witnesses, uh, so there are layers to this divine principle of separation, separating both to and from. Just as there are separating to and from applications in relation to the unenlightened community, there are also separation to and from applications in relation to the enlightened community. The separation from aspect in relation to the enlightened community is another one of those issues being regularly disrespected in our last generation of the enlightened community. Without exception, it is always the case that these challenges to God's righteousness facing us in the enlightened community involve dismissing one of the always two features of every divine principle. The separation issue challenging the enlightened community today is the issue of separating from in relation to the enlightened community. There are two separation from applications that should be understood. One is behaviorally based and the other is doctrinally based. But these separation from applications can also have two different terms. There can be a temporary separation from application to be exercised within the enlightened community, and there can be a permanent separation from application to be exercised within the enlightened community. The issue separating these two terms, temporary or permanent, is the issue of repentance. This too is a divine principle that is very commonly misunderstood in our current enlightened community. Repentance is often presumed to be simply an expression of supposed regret without any significant demonstrated integrity. Now, it should be understood that it is the two aspects of every divine principle that provide the necessary balance for divine acceptability. It's the common failure in our enlightened community today to only focus on a single aspect of many different divine principles. And this results in an imbalance that has been prophesied about our last generation of the ecclesial age. The generation that's prophesied is witnessing the return of Jesus Christ and the restoration of the kingdom of God. When it comes to the divine principle of separation, it is the separation to aspect that's far more pleasant than the separation from category of this principle. This is why unity is promoted, but not 
harmony, presuming everything is about inclusion without a separation from. This unpleasant feature of the separation from aspect is addressed by Jesus in that same iconic Sermon on the Mount uh, where he explained that the requirements for divine acceptability were being made far more difficult by him. In Luke chapter 6, we read uh, Jesus saying, Blessed are you when, when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice you in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Now this is perfectly clear that this refers to brothers and sisters in the truth that are hated by others within the enlightened community. What makes it so obvious is Jesus provides the control parallel. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Historically, if one has been willing to defend God's righteousness within the enlightened community, which certainly highlights the always encroaching darkness, they've been mistreated, often quite severely. The pattern is extremely obvious all through Scripture. Jesus warned the disciples two days before Passover that they would be betrayed by direct family members, parents and brethren and kinsfolk, and also friends, and that some of them would be executed. Then Jesus tells them in Luke 17, you shall be hated by all men for my name's sake. All men includes both the enlightened community and the unenlightened community. The very death of Jesus was orchestrated by the respected leaders of the enlightened covenant-bound community, the Christadelphians of their generation. Stephen was stoned to death by members of the enlightened community when he rebuked them. Don't expect this effect to be any different today than it's been for the history of the enlightened community for almost 6,000 years. What makes this problem more challenging today is that getting along with each other without conflict or distress is being presented as being far more important than the terms of God's righteousness. An example of this uh, I've referenced before, was the official Bible school policy that was imposed a few decades ago, uh, first at Wilbraham Bible School in Massachusetts in the U.S., uh, requiring that no controversial issues uh, should be discussed while at Bible school. Well, that policy was, and still is, a direct attack against the ultimate significance of the principle of truth. It's a statement that our pleasant social interaction is far more important than defending the integrity of the terms of our Creator's righteousness. Again, this demonstrates a preference for unity among men at the expense of harmony with God, declaring that our getting along socially is more important than defending the terms of God's righteousness with any sort of Phineas-like zealousness we're supposed to be calm and not highlight the errors of others. Sad. In the Apostle Paul's advice to the Brotherhood about eliminating ecclesial divisions, 
The goal was not simply ignoring differences in understanding, understandings, but converging on the same understandings. First uh, Corinthians 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul is not suggesting the usual frame of reference that we hear today to ignore challenges to, two tr to true principles in order to demonstrate a merely social joining together. He tells them to be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment, speaking the same thing. Again, harmony, agreement, definitely not unity, which is only based on the toleration of diversity, the toleration of those divisions that Paul objects to. The Corinthians were making social identifications, identifying themselves with Paul or Peter or Apollos, as opposed to identifying themselves with God. And there were definitely doctrinal and behavioral issues to separate from within the Corinthian ecclesia. This separating from aspect of the principle of separation applied within the enlightened community is clearly highlighted in the, in the account in 1 Corinthians 5, where we see the policy of ecclesial fellowship withdrawal defined and applied, with the appropriate motivations and desired results being explained. Fellowship withdrawal is addressed several places throughout the New Testament. The common prompt for all these references to the practice of fellowship withdrawal is always the same. The absence of a necessary and real repentance, not a fake repentance, like we've seen in so many cases in our community over the last 50 years. The term that is used more than once is delivering the offender to Satan, to Satan, which simply means consigning that unrepentant offender